may be seated. First of all, y'all bear with me today, because if you can't tell from my voice, I'm a little bit under the weather. Our house has been turned into an infirmary over the last few days, um, but I'm here, so that's good. Um, but if I break down into a coughing fit, I want you to know it's not, you know, I'm not dying. I just have a cold or something. Um, I also wanted to tell you, so in case I break into like a James Earl Jones voice, um, you don't attribute that to my, uh, to the presence of the Holy Spirit anointing my preaching. Um, so, um, so that, that being said, uh, there's really a very simple message that I want, I want to dwell on in our readings today. Um, and it, 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 I think, is most clearly presented um, in our epistle reading, which we'll come to in a moment. But I, I want to set the stage with our reading from the Gospel of Luke. Um, in, in this reading, Jesus tells two memorable parables to the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, there's the shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Um, I, that's math I can do, 99 plus one. He has a hundred sheep. He leaves the 99 to find one who has gone missing, one who is lost takes it, brings it back. That's parable one. Parable two is a woman who has uh, ten coins, and she loses one. And she uh, stops everything she's doing. She rummages through all of her cabinets and uh, uh, pilfers all of her pockets and and shuffles through all of her, her couch cushions in search of this one coin until she finds it. And then when she does, uh, she calls her neighbors over to rejoice. Now, I, I know that... Um, you know, in our, in our culture, coins aren't worth all that much. Um, that's not the kind of coins we're talking about. So clearly, it's, it's a pretty exciting thing if you're calling the neighbors and say, hey, I found this coin I was missing. <coughs> and in both of these cases, <coughs> the emphasis is not just on uh, what is found, but on the response to it. When the lost sheep are found, when the lost coin is found, there's occasion for joy for rejoicing, for celebration, for joy and gladness. Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. These are good parables filled with encouragement and comfort when we consider that our own repentance and the repentance of others is cause for celebration in heaven. But there's more to the story. And in fact, in some ways, as as powerful as those parables are, Uh, They really gain their meaning. We really come to understand them through the first two uh, uh, statements that are made in this reading. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling among themselves, saying, look, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's what's setting the stage for this story. Did you catch that first bit? The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. The tax collectors, the the ones who cooperate with the Roman government, they're traitors to their own people. Um, They're crooked. They make their money off of extortion and cheating and lying. And sinners, which is a a broad social category in Jesus' age that covered anybody who who made their living um, by some kind of, of nefarious means. Um, could have been prostitutes, it could have been um, thieves, it could have been, uh, it could have been just social outcasts, people who just um, you know, weren't, weren't clean enough um, for the Pharisees. Whatever it was, tax collectors and sinners, they're the worst of the worst, they're the immoral, they're the sick, the broken, and they're 
all huddling around Jesus. They're all drawing near to see Jesus, to hear him. They're attracted to him. These broken people are attracted to Jesus. There's something in him. There's something in his message that promises them life. That speaks of hope. That promises a joy that's not available elsewhere. Of course, if the gospel is good news for sinners, then it's not such good news for those who are pretty convinced that they're righteous, upright, moral people. And in fact, for these people, for the scribes and the Pharisees, the gospel is an outright disruption. It messes up their whole plan. It throws off everything. When the Pharisees and scribes see that sinners have drawn near to Jesus, they become indignant. They're grumbling among themselves and they're saying with this sort of righteous indignation, this man receives sinners and eats with them. If it wasn't bad enough that he received them, he sits down at a table with them. That's the kind of guy this is. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. The ones who think they are righteous do not see the coming of the sinner as a joyful thing, but as something vile and reprehensible and shameful. In other words, the coming of Jesus was not good news to them. If you're okay with how you are, if you're okay with how you are, if you think you're well, if you think you're upstanding, moral, and basically a good person, then not only is Jesus not for you, he's going to mess up all of that. He's going to throw it all off, ruin all of your plans. As Jesus himself reminds us, it's not the well who need a doctor. It's not those who are safe who need a savior. It's the sinner. But for us who know that we are sinners, sick and sore, the gospel is good news to us. Very good news. And that's where St. Paul comes in. In our reading today, we heard this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, that's something I'm going to say again in just a little bit. After our confession, after the absolution, I'm going to read you what are called the comfortable words. Now, comfortable does not mean like lazy boy, easy and soft. That's not what comfortable means in this case. Comfortable means full of comfort. It means comforting. I'm going to read you those words, and this is one of them. It's a comforting word to us. What St. Paul is saying is that our Lord came to us for one reason. To save sinners. That's why he came. He left behind the glories of heaven to save sinners. He left behind the angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven to save sinners. He came to us to save us. Paul says that the law was given not so that the righteous could know that they were righteous. So the law, the the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, all of those those, uh, right and good precepts, commandments that God gives, they weren't given so that the righteous could look at them and say, yep, I'm good. It's precisely the opposite. He says the law was given. The law is laid down not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, that's a pretty exhaustive list, I think. These are the people that Paul has in mind when he says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That list is drawn from the verses, just a a few verses preceding the reading that we read today. Those are the sinners that Paul has in mind. Christ came for the criminals. Christ came for the violent. For the wrathful. For the lustful. For the proud, for cheats and for liars, for the deceptive. Those are the people Christ came for. For the broken. When Paul says that Christ came to save sinners, he means sinners. And in case you're tempted to view that list as some sort of a condemnation of others as if Paul is being holier than thou, he puts himself very much squarely in that category. Actually, he goes a step further and says that he himself is the foremost sinner. He's got them all beat. He displays his own sinfulness. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now, that's, that's quite a, uh, a flowery way to describe your own sinfulness. But what he's saying is he helped hunt down and kill Christ's own followers. He was there when the crowd, crowd stoned Stephen. He was literally the coat man at the event of the first Christian martyrdom other than Christ. He was a blasphemer, which is the very worst sin that a first century Jew could have committed. He was an insolent opponent. Uh, The word here means someone who's driven by hubris, uh, uh, filled with pride. Someone who's not only arrogant, but violently arrogant. That's how he sees himself. That's how he saw himself apart from Christ. And since Paul knows he's a sinner, he knows Christ came for him. And therefore, that's good news. Maybe even more striking is the way he prefaces this message. He says that the saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, it is trustworthy and it is deserving of full acceptance. It's trustworthy. That means we can trust it. That means it's credible. It's believable. It's reliable. It's the truth. The fact is, I think a lot of us struggle to believe, to accept these words. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is that we are like the scribes and the Pharisees. We're too much stuck in ourselves, convinced that we're uh, right before God, that we don't need a Savior, that we're strong enough, good enough. We cannot easily see in this case how we're sinful and broken and how we need the grace that God gives in Christ. But there's also the other end of the spectrum. There's those of us who are tempted by despair. Those of us who are, are, see our own sin so clearly and it looms so largely in our own minds that we're tempted to believe that it's greater than the grace of God. In other words, that what Paul is saying here is simply too good to be true. I think both of those lies need to be called out and corrected and answered with the saying is trustworthy. And it's not only trustworthy, but Paul says it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Deserving of full acceptance. That means not only that we can trust it, but that we should. 
Full acceptance means so much more than just acknowledgement or intellectual affirmation. I know that when I stand before you and I say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, no one in here is going to raise a hand and say, I don't agree with that. No one's going to intellectually disagree with that. But Paul's not interested in getting our intellectual assent. He's saying the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The word is all acceptance, every acceptance. It means that we should welcome and receive and cling to this trustworthy saying in every possible way. It means that we should hear these words and ponder them in our minds, contemplate them in our imaginations, that we should treasure them in our hearts and be so filled with these words that they come to transform our lives. That they change the way we see ourselves, the way we see one another, the way we see the broken, the hurting, the sinners of the world. And if we could fully accept these words, they would so fill our hearts and minds with joy, so fill our imagination with hope, and so fill our community with love that this would truly be a place where the sinners of our world would gather, would be attracted to, a place where sinners find that sin is met with forgiveness, enslavement met with deliverance, weakness met with strength, sorrow met with joy, a place where the grace of Christ calls us to come home, to sit down, and to share in his grace. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.